Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's season two of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We're having a lot of fun. Got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're talking about guitars. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just having a good old time. We're chewing the gristle for pity's sake. You know, and gristle is where fat meets flavor. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, my distinct pleasure of having a guy who I've learned so much from personally and from his unbelievably great instructional videos back in the day. An artist of his own right, great guitar player, heck of a nice guy, Arlen Roth, ladies and gentlemen. Can you dig it? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to yet another installment of Chewing the Gristle. I'm Greg Koch. My great honor and privilege to be speaking with the mighty Arlen Roth, who is a guitar player extraordinaire, has had the most fascinating career, one of the preeminent guitar instructors of all time. And we've never really got the chance to hang, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. No. How the heck are you? I know, man. I'm, I'm really good and uh, looking forward to this because... We were supposed to get together last year. Yes. Like in the form of actually playing music together. And then everything happened and uh, all music got canceled pretty much. That is correct. All, all in-person music. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to this and, and other things in the future. My Absolutely, man. my friend. Yeah. yeah. You know, I... Uh... I think I've told you this before, but um, I guess my first introduction to you is when I uh, bought the slide guitar book, like so many other people <laughs> of my generation, went out and got that slide book. And, you know, my whole right-hand muting technique that I do is directly from that book. Yeah. And then, of course, all your cool articles in Guitar Player Magazine and the little vinyl uh, records that would be included with those. And I remember particularly there was one you did on a Strat and you had a compressor on and you were doing some harmonic thing. It was beautiful and it just was, it was yeah. awesome. That must have been 85-ish, I'm thinking. Uh, uh, the, the one that was in Guitar Player, I think, was as far back as 82. No, that could be as well. Was 82 was when my Guitar Player column started. Okay. But what happened was before that, they had me do, I did a few big articles. I did one on, um, I think it was on Dwayne Allman and on a couple of other things. And I remember uh, it was really funny because uh, Steve I was doing, you know, was doing the uh, transcribing. Okay. And he didn't understand that when I was playing slide, I was an E-tuning. So... <laughs> So he's writing this thing out like all over the neck, you know, and I was making, because when I did Crossroads with him, I was making fun. I said, you didn't even know I was an E-tuning and here <laughs> I am playing slide guitar. I mean, you could hear the chord, you know, you hear the, right. the harmonies. No, he transcribed it note for note, you know. So That's it's funny. funny. But he was uh, being so scholarly, you know. Sure. So, but that was about 82 or 81. Now, I remember I was, I was in there, Ingve Malmstein was on the cover, and I had the the sheet in the in there. It was only the second um, sheet that they had in in Guitar Player at that point. And of course, I had had them in my earlier books, like the slide book that you. Sure. I was nineteen when I wrote that book. It's awesome. I wrote it on the road. I was with John Prime. Wrote it in the bus. A lot of it, you know, in my bunk, in my bunk on my. Our Silver Eagle bus until the bus got stolen. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. So you're on the road, you're 19, and but you realize already then 
that this, I, I can't just, I mean, you could just play, but you also had the prescience, if you will, to realize it might be a good idea to have other streams of income, other ways of, of doing this. And so yeah. you got the idea for this book, someone approach you or how did it all transpire? Yeah, I, it wasn't even so much the idea of other streams of income. It was just other streams of being known. I got you. Of getting out. I didn't know yet that you made money doing these things, really. <laughs> or money, you know, or that that could be negotiated, you know. My advance was $150. And they said, what are you going to do with the money, little boy? You know, what, oh, I'm going to put it in my piggy bank. You know, <laughs> what are you going to do with the money? They must have seen how young I was, you know. But I was so excited. Wow, I'm signing a deal. What happened was very simple. Um, at that point, I'd already been working with Happy and Artie Traum, mm-hmm. of Woodstock. Yep. And I've been touring with them for like, from when I was 17 to about 19. And Happy, I did a section in one of Happy's books on string bending, on my pedal steel licks. Okay. And I remember the next day, Happy showed up at a rehearsal with his fingers in bandages. I said, what are you doing, man? He said, well, I was trying your pedal steel licks. I said, you're playing a Martin D-18. <laughs> the round G, and you're trying to do my pedal steel licks with your index? I said, forget it. He actually chewed up his hands doing it. Nah. I said, no, you need an electric guitar, man, with light string. But anyway, so he, um, I did that section for him, which was I was so proud of. You know, there I am with my cowboy shirt and my, my yeah, yeah. Les Paul. And then I'm like, wow, I'm really in print. So Happy uh, had been approached by music sales. At that time, it was Oak Publications. And they said, we're going to do a three-part book on pedal steel, dobro, and slide guitar. And of course, a lot of people back then made the mistake of always bunching them together as if it was one instrument. Like in New York, they say, you play steel pedal? You play steel pedal? (laughs) I said, it's not steel pedal, all right? You got one? (laughs) Yeah, I got one, okay? No, but like, just a happy uh, said, well, they need a guy to write the section on slide guitar. And they, and I recommended you. So I said, okay, that's great. So I go down to music sales in Manhattan. And the first thing I did was convince them that that's got to be three separate books. You know, back then it was like, God forbid, going to be an $11 book. Oh, how could right. you have $11? Because I think my slide book was like $2.95 when it first came out. And it's still number one in the world in terms of like slide guitar books. You know? That's a great book. It's amazing. I mean, I did it when I was 19. I'm like, how do I know all this stuff? You know, this kid in the Bronx. But so they, uh, so then I walked out of there actually with a three book deal on slide guitar, Nashville guitar, my, you know, all my string bending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first book to do that too. In fact, I had to change tablature in order to do that book because, um, uh, you know, it always used to say bend, just bend the string, bend. Well, bend how far? Bend a half step, bend a whole step. Right. You know, bend a step and a half. What? So right. I would, I changed tablature so it would say what note you're actually bending to. Now, where did you get that skill set? Did you just have to learn it on the fly or did you have some yeah. introduction to? No, I learned it on the fly. I mean, I was playing, I started very young. And I fell in love with, uh, with, I loved blues as well as country at the same time, you know? I mean, I'd be playing Buddy Guy riffs, but I'd also be playing Zalianowski riffs, you know? Sure. Clarence White riffs as well as B.B. King riffs, you know? Sure. To me, it's all the same, really. Right, of course. As, as you know, you know? So, um, 
But what I got into, I guess from having a pretty good ear, I always wanted the bends to be really accurate. Sure. And in 66 or 67, when I heard the Birds Younger Than Yesterday album, and I heard, you know, they didn't say it was Clarence White because he didn't get credit on that album. Right. On those two Chris Hillman songs, I could hear that there was something bending because I was playing pedal steel at that time already. I had a little, uh, you know, an eight string, one neck fender pedal steel. And I said, that's really sounds like something mechanical is pulling the strings. But I just started simulating it with my fingers. So what would have been a bend, you know, would have been a B bender. And I was doing with my index finger on the G string. Of course, I was doing the B string bends, too. But, you know, I want to get that full chord, that full, you know, major triad chord. Then I'm getting the the full, you know, to the, the major third and even to the minor third. You know, so I just started really training my ear to do that. I mean, there was nothing really pushing me other than that. That's what I wanted to do. I just had this love of the guitar and I wasn't a professional player yet. You know, I became professional in 69, 70. I had a band called Steel. Uh, I was at school in Philadelphia and they were living with me. And we go up to the town of Woodstock, New York and play on weekends, you know, just sit in wherever we could or play gigs. And I was like so hell bent on getting in the community of real musicians, you know. Uh, And so, but we, you know, we had such a ball at that time. It was just playing music to play music, you know. And we were just, you know, it seems um, unusual for that time to to someone who was into the skill set that you were into to have the, the, the transcribing chops, you know what I mean? The ability to notate that stuff. Did, is that something you just learned or was it something you would, were you like uh, formally trained at some read, point? I never learned to read music. I just learned, I just know music from theory, from absorbing theory and the relationship of notes and also being out there playing in front of uh, people my whole life, you know, like you got to survive. You're up there right. 17 years old. And the guy says, man, I love those tenths that you're playing. Oh, that's a 10th. Okay. I'll remember what a 10th is. Right. So little, these little clues, you know, let you know what's going on. But I, when I signed that deal for that slide book, they said, okay, you know, you're going to do this book. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't there going to say to them, look, I don't, I don't write music or read music. I was going to not, gonna, I didn't want to be a deal breaker. It could sure, have right. I'm writing music books and I can't even read music, you know? So what I did was I remembered from when I was like in kindergarten and first grade. And in fact, I'm in touch with my kindergarten teacher these days, believe it or not. And I, um, I remembered from the tonette, we had this little flute, plastic flute we would play where the G was. The G somehow looked correct to me to be, that's a good place for a G. So then I figured, okay, well, that must be A above it. There must be G flat below it. You know, like, sure. so when I wrote that book, I had, nobody was looking over my shoulder, like, hurry up, write. You know, I'm writing very slowly, learning music as I'm writing along. And awesome. of course, tablature, very easy to figure out because tablature is great. It's, it's the actual physical right. action on the guitar. You know, like the E is going to be the E on the fifth fret of the B string, you know, that kind of thing. So I learned as I went along, you know, I just learned. And I I was young enough that I also understood that I had this natural learning ability 
in terms of my ear, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, just in terms of playing. Playing is what teaches you to play right. even better. But, um, yeah, I, I got that ability to, like, just recognize it. And, like, I still, if you put music down in front of me, you know, it's like the old story, like, how do you get a guitar player to shut up, right? <laughs> that, that's it, you know. But tablature, you know, tablature is fine. Sure. Sometimes I used to have sessions in New York City, some unbelievably torturous recording sessions, where I'd say, could I please see the music the night before? Right. <laughs> Give me the music. And I'd be down there with like 12 pages of music, and I'd be transcri- transcribing it to tablature. Sure. So I could understand it. I remember one session like that that was on lap steel on Hawaiian guitar. I'm like, oh, my God. They got all these pages of music on lap steel, and I should be looking at the – I got to be looking at the instrument to see right. who I am. And I'm looking at all this music, you know, it was pretty funny, but uh, you know, some of those sessions, they take about five years off your life. Yeah. <laughs> Such torture. You know, you're sitting there with like 12 Philharmonic musicians all playing bass fiddle and you're trying to get through with your little uh, lap steel and your little tweed amp. Oh yeah. Pace, trying to get through it. You know, it's like torture. You know, That's funny what you said. Cause I, I I could totally relate to the idea of, you know, what is a good lesson for people going into the music business or really any business that you, you don't say no, you say, of course I can do that. Right. Right. <laughs> the opportunity was right there and I'm 19 years old. I'm like, and I walked out of there with a three book deal. Right. You know, I'm going in expecting to do one, one book to convince them that it should be a book on its own. And in fact, right. I ended up recommending the people who did the pedal steel part and who did the dobro part. I recommended them. Right. So I had already had a pretty good amount of experience of those previous three or four years being part of the Woodstock scene, playing with a lot of different people, you know, and uh, getting exposed to it. Boom. You know, all of a sudden I'm playing around the village with a lot of a lot of cool people. You know, I mean, sure. Happy and Artie at that time were a very good conduit for those sort of things. Like we had Maria Moldar. Right. Group. She's on my new album, actually, the one I just did with Sebastian. But we, Artie would introduce her as, her name at that time was Maria D'Amato. And he'd say, you say D'Amato, I say D'Amato. <laughs> and Artie was so funny. But, you know, there would be a lot of good players, a lot of good people passing through there. Oh, I'll ignore that phone. <laughs> Dad's Whoa, adding a soundtrack. Does, does the Edge get a royalty every time this plays? I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like the Edge to me. Hey, guy, I sold an amp to him. The guy said, "I said who who bought the amp?" He says, "You know, Edge." I said, "What do you mean, Edge? Is that like some Bob De Niro?" Hey, Edge. <laughs> Take out the just, Edge. All right, some I kind of gangster. We'll just call him Ed. You know? <laughs> Well, you know, I'm I'm curious as to, you know, your your dad was a cartoonist and your brothers are cartoonists as well, right? No, no, no. My my dad and his brothers. Oh, okay, got you, got you. Four, they were the four Zany Roth brothers. Got it. And they came from Romania. Uh, my dad was eleven. They came to America in 1922, and they were all soccer players, great soccer players. And uh, one day they all won this. PSAL medal in New York City for playing his soccer match. And um, and they my uncle Irving, the oldest, said, you know what? Every, they listened to him. He was the boss, you know. Uh, and let's melt it down and we'll have one big Roth medal. All right. Okay, Irving. So they're there in, in Harlem. They're on 116th Street or wherever they lived. 
and they got this pan, they end up with this big melted bronze blob. And they said, you know, I think that ends our, our soccer career and we're gonna all become cartoonists. <laughs> but it was like, it's like the R. Crumb family without the true insanity that R. Crumb, you know. Right. But my dad was just the greatest and what a great cartoonist and brilliant artist. This is his paintings all around here. Awesome. And uh, that's the one he did of me. I don't know if you can see that. There's oh, yeah. And uh, I remember he couldn't even make me stand still for that. I was running around pitching. I was always doing the pitching motion because I wanted to be a pitcher, you know. So, uh, but he was great, you know, and I had him around all the time because he was a cartoonist, a, 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 you know, a self-perpetuating uh, freelance guy. So, so he, he understood the musician thing and there was no, it was yeah, all the good. Artist, the yeah. artist thing. He said, yeah. you know, you're going to be a guitar player because he would play flamenco in the house. He played like Carlos Montoya mm -hmm. and Sabicas and all the great flamenco. Really, he had these rare, almost like bootleg flamenco recordings from the streets of Spain, right, recorded right there on the street. And you'd hear people talking and you hear them, you know. So I would play, start to play along. I had a guitar with two strings. We had, we didn't know, I didn't know there was more than two strings. My brother's guitar from college. So I would start making up things on the two strings. And I, of course I'd play slide, mm -hmm. you know, cause the action was probably this high, you know. And uh, he said, you know, I could just see it. You are gonna be, you have that ear. You're gonna be a guitar. And nobody in my family was ever musical, you know, at all. But he was such a creative force. You know I mean? He had to give a hundred cartoons a week to the New Yorker magazine. That was his primarily primary thing was New, the New Yorker, which was like the, which is the top of the right chain when it comes to cartooning, and so he I'd sit on his lap, you know, while while he'd be doing the cartoons, there's photographs like that. I'm 32, of course, at that point, but it was uh, <laughs> that's, that's not weird. <laughs> I was 40 at the time, no, but he uh, he was just great, you know, and the whole family, the humor, you know, and the the response to the, you know, the real stuff, you know, if yeah. I didn't feel like going to school, like he had to deal with the fact that I never wanted to go to school. So he'd take me to the park and we'd hit home runs. He had to chase after every home run. I mean, he's just a great father who understood, you know, my brother who's 10 years older than me. He is a painter. He's an artist. Oh, cool. And, and a designer and all that stuff. So uh, that, that part of what my father had professionally really got passed on to my brother David and uh, and so and David was a big influence on me too you know he was encouraging me all along because here I am seeing this guy who's 10 years old than me he take me to blues clubs in Chicago he was going to the Institute of Design oh. at I IIT in Chicago from 59 to 61 I think he was there but you know I We'd go, we'd drive out to Chicago in our 54 Buick, you know, and he'd take me to these clubs. I remember seeing Muddy Waters. I remember seeing Sleepy John Estes. Oh. You know, and they slid like a Coca-Cola down the bar to me, you know, like it was a beer, like right. all the way down, you know. And my dad, I remember my dad going, goes, all the women in here are prostitutes. <laughs> all prostitutes. I didn't even know what he meant at that point. Our car <laughs> broke down. Our car broke down and there was two black guys uh, fixed the car, fixed the transmission while we waited. And my dad said, well, what do I pay them now? What do I, you know, because his friend worked it out 
my brother's roommate's father. He said, no, just do a caricature of them. My dad did these, these incredible caricatures. These guys, they were cracking up. They were laughing at each other. You know, my dad just did that drawing. That drawing might still be hanging somewhere in the south side of Chicago, you know? Wild. But it was great. I mean, all those times, when you're that age, these impressions are made so strongly, you know, on you. So Absolutely. I was going to ask you how you had your entree into all that Roots music, but it sounds like your older brother may have been uh, a force in all of that. He was a force. I mean, he had this little green record player where he would play all this, like, Fats Domino and Dion. And, you know, I mean, of course, I grew up in the Bronx where you would hear the doo-wop harmony, and people were always singing on every corner. You know, that was wow. the thing, was harmony. Yeah. And we used to sing in the bathroom at school. We'd sing harmonies, you know. And, um, but... There, you know, I went to music and art high school, which was a very progressive high school in New York where it was all the creative kids from the city, from all different walks of life. So, you know, I'd come to school with my guitar and after school would invariably be a jam at somebody's apartment. Oh, this time we're going to go to Alan's house or we're going to go to Danny's house or we're going to whatever. And we'd be listening to records, you know, we'd be listening to Kerner Ray and Glover and picking up stuff, and, and Robert Johnson, and Sunhouse. I mean, it was all so immediate, you know, and we right. were so, and you gotta remember, that was the blues boom, you know, around 66, 67, vintage guitars, and blues, and, and you know, old time folk and country, that was all, you know, on a very high level in New York City. We were, we were learning at a rapid rate, but we didn't care so much about what we were learning in school. We just couldn't wait to get our guitars and start playing after school, you know? Sure. It was great. It was great. So when you went to Philadelphia, what was, what was that school? Well, that was Philadelphia College of Art. Because <clears throat> I was still pursuing my love of photography at that point. But already um, my, my roommate, who I just happened to get paired with in college, uh, ended up being a terrific musician himself, Sandy Berman, uh, who was from Asbury Park. Okay. So he and I formed a band, and then I got a drummer, Roy Faber, who was up in White Lake, New York. Because I was, I lived in White Lake, which is where the Woodstock Festival was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yasgur's Farm and all that. So uh, then we formed a group that summer, and I had a, I'd gotten a bad case of mono at college, as many people do. I did. And I yes. missed. It. <laughs> you did. <laughs> well, I missed an entire semester, and. I gave my, I, I left school. I, you know, the doctor wouldn't let me go back to Philly. And my 52 Les Paul was in my room at college. Oh. So then I find out that my roommate at that time lent my Les Paul out to a guy for like an entire year. And it came back. Like somehow I was able to get it back. I said, you lent that guitar away? I still have it now. I still have that guitar. But because that was my first really good guitar, you know. And uh, I think there's a picture with you with that on the slide book, right? Yeah, it's yeah. probably in there. Yeah, definitely. I, I used, I st when, when I stopped using that guitar a lot for lead, when I went to more Fender type guitars, I would use that, that for slide. Got it. Yeah, like on my first album, all the slide stuff is the, is the Les Paul, but, um, and a Strat too. But <clears throat> the, um, you know, those those days were just incredible. But I, I went to Philadelphia College of Art 
which was like a step down from being uh, in the high school of music and art in New York City, because the people ha didn't have that same conviction, that same love of art. They were kind of like dabbling in it, you know. Got it. Yep. But there was a big music scene in Philly, and we would do these throw these block parties in South Philadelphia, where we'd have like a thousand people there. We just get a, a flatbed truck and we start playing. We didn't need a permit or anything. I remember at that time, Frank Rizzo, who was a real like law and order kind of guy, was running to be mayor. Right. He said, we're going to stop those rock concerts downtown. And then he's talking about us. Yay. We, <laughs> those rock we made it to television. He's going to stop us. You know? But it was so exciting. You know, and South Street at that time was all these wonderful pawn shops where I could just, I mean, they had thousands of guitars. I wish I had, you know, I didn't even have a hundred dollars at that time to get what I wanted, but I did pick up a few choice guitars along the way down there. And it was so exciting, you know? Now, I'm curious about the, the whole Woodstock thing. I mean, so at what point did that become, was it because Dylan went there and Albert Grossman? Is, is that how, how it kind of started as being like a music town and the band went there and Butterfield well, and yeah. all those guys? Well, Woodstock was always like an artist community. Okay. And I think what happened was when the Woodstock Festival happened, which, you know, they voted down, it ended up 70 miles away in Bethel, New York, right. where I lived, that the name Woodstock and music started becoming more associated with each other. Got it. So, Because there were a lot of folkies up there, still was like the folksy, but it was mostly visual artists, you know, painters, writers people like that. But then, yeah, when the band, when Dylan started going up there and the band would be big pink, right. LA, uh, that's when it really kicked off. And I started playing there and, uh, you know, I sat in one time in between Buzzy Featon's set, Buzzy, you know, I, I said, look, I got my whole band here. Can we come up and play while you guys are on a break? Sure. You know, those are, we played like that. And I'm like, wow, Paul Butterfield's over there at the bar. Right. I want Butter to notice me, you know. It was so exciting. And, uh, you know, sitting in with people, jamming all the time. Uh, it was a very open situation. I mean, I could be at this restaurant, the Joyous Lake, and, you know, I'd be on stage. I'd jump up there with Butterfield, with Rick Danko, with John Simon, who was the producer of the band. Mm -hmm. At that time, he's the one that started giving me calls to give me work. After he heard, I walked on stage. I blew everybody, blew everybody's mind. You know, I knew that I had something special to offer. You know, and Amos Garrett was there. Who I was yeah, a big, yeah. big fan of Amos Garrett. Yeah, know? absolutely. Amos was so cool. We used to hang out together. I was with him the first time we listened to uh, Midnight at the Oasis. Ah, uh, cool. I went with him in his little Volkswagen. We went to Maria Moldar's house. And she was there on a swing in front of everybody, practically naked, Bless in her, her living room, which wasn't bad at all. I'm like, what, what mommy, mommy? <laughs> she's there, and, and she's there, and, and uh, we're listening to, to Midnight Two It's the first, like, test pressing. Awesome. And I remember I was there. Artie was there, too. Artie told me, he goes, Amos. He goes, oh, my God, Amos, like that. We're like, whoa. It was very, you know, very exciting stuff. And I got to play with so many people, and then... That went on for about five years. And then 75, I got the call to be with John Prine. Right. 
which was more of a, it was a world tour. I mean, American Canadian tour, but he was based in LA at that time doing his record. So I went out there and that's where we started, you know, getting ready for that tour and all that. And I felt like I was getting kicked into a higher realm at that point being with Prine and everything. Sure. Yeah. So did you move out to LA at that point or were you no. always, okay. You always stayed in kind of the upper uh, upstate New York at that point, or were you in New York uh, proper or kind I of both? In the Bronx. I was still living in New York. And then in 75, uh, I actually got uh, his manager, the late great Al Benetta, who was fantastic. He managed John Prine and Steve Goodman. Okay. Um, he had me, uh, I got his apartment. He was leaving for LA. He moved to LA so I got his New York City apartment, which was like for $200. I'm like facing Central Park, <laughs> you know, and and I could barely afford the $200 a month at that point, you know. But uh, I, I like that really helped me get get out on my own, you know. And then sure. I was breaking into the New York session scene and doing a lot of gigs with, like that. And all my Woodstock buddies, because uh, I did live in Woodstock for one year the one year when I had absolutely no work up there, <laughs> 71, <laughs> you know, um, but uh, all my friends like Tony Brown, the bass player, who's the one who really discovered me. He's on the blood on the tracks album. Okay. Yeah. Those guys, all those people then moved to New York city. There was this big movement to the city to get lofts. Like I got a loft. I was, you know, after, after that uh, 82nd street, Albanetta thing that lasted two years. Then I got a loft in lower Manhattan, which was, you know, right underneath the world trade center, practically just a block from the world trade center. But we all got lofts like that, which were great because you could rehearse in them. You had real space, you know, and that was like the beginning of that sort of trend in New York city. Cool. And everywhere, you know, I get there lofts everywhere now, you know, but that was an interesting time. And we, Played lots of music and I play, you know, clubs all the time. I had almost a residency at uh, a club called Kenny's Castaways in Manhattan, where I would uh, play pretty much almost every weekend with my band. And we would pack that place, man. I mean, there was like lines around the block to see awesome. never anybody from the music business that could have actually helped us. But we had lots of fans. Excellent. So, Thousands of cassettes from those days of like, my God, you know. But what I liked was a lot of fellow musicians used to come to see me play. Like, you know, like uh, somebody would be in town, like, um, uh, what's his name? I'm trying to remember all these different groups. But, you know, all the players would come and see me. They're there and they would be hanging out after the gig. So it was this kind of like musician fellowship thing going on, which sure. was, was exciting at that time. And then... I only lived about five blocks from there, you know, make sure to go shopping at one of the Korean markets because we had no places to shop for food around me. So I'd shop at like two o'clock in the morning and, you know, go back home and walk up four flights with my twin reverb, you know, <laughs> crazy. I lived above a music store. I lived above a music store. So when they were open, I could just say, here, take this amp. I don't oh. want to see it, you know, <laughs> but they... Yeah, Twins are not light. You must have had arms of steel at that point. Oh, it was hard. And metal stairs, four flights of metal stairs. Oh. I don't know how I did it because it was that and groceries, you know? Right. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, at that age, you feel like you could conquer anything. And, you know, everything in New York is somehow kicked into a little bit of a higher degree of difficulty. Sure. You know? 
which, which you just accept, you know, being from New York. Yeah, I, so I suppose going to the gigs, you're, you're taking cabs, right? You're not driving? Cabs, yes. Uh, I remember one time, the, the gig that ended up with me, I'm in that new Dylan uh, Rolling Thunder movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eric Anderson, who I was playing with at the time, said, Ireland, the, the, uh, the, the survivors of the 70s are going to be decided tonight. The survivors of the 70s. So you should be there. So I, at that time, I said, okay, well, you know, there was a rumor that Dylan was going to be there. Just a rumor at Gertie's Folk City, which was, you know, what, what gave Dylan his first gig ever in New York. So I grabbed my little pig nose amp. I said, well, I'm not really going to do a gig with a pig nose, but what the hell? This is just a, a maybe gig. Right. And I'm, I got my Martin 0018, which I had just gotten from Ry Cooter. When I was on tour with John Prine, it was for sale at uh, Westwood Music. And what a, what a guitar. Oh, my God. 30 years that guitar served me well. And I had my, my 53 Tele and the pig nose amp, and I got on the subway. Yeah took the subway down and I'm with these two guitars in this little tiny amp and I walk in and right away they start putting a mic on me and bright lights. I said, Oh, something is going to happen, you know? And right away, boom, Dylan walks in with his entourage with John Baez and everybody. And he wanted to borrow my guitar. He goes, no strap. I said, Bob, you really talk that way. You know, no. (laughs) (laughs) I would throw in those extras. Yeah, but he, I said, no strap. And Joan Baez said to me, oh, you're going to be sorry you're giving him a guitar with no strap. And sure enough, like he put this big belt buckle scratch, which I loved. The scratch was like, you know, we have it now framed in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> I used to show everybody, here's the scratch that Dylan made, you know. So Dylan used my guitar and I was playing my telly and it was great, you know. what? But that whole night was insane. I, I got a book that's going to come out where I had that entire... I remember every detail about that night, you know, and I played with Phil Oaks. I played with Roger McGuinn. I played with Bette Midler, you know, Patti Smith. The one that's in the movie is me and Patti Smith. Got it. You know, she's like reciting poetry and I saw, just start playing the shuffle rhythm behind me. And Allen Ginsberg is there reciting poetry and I'm making up stuff behind Allen Ginsberg. Right. Like, Aren't you the guy that tried to accost me in the subway about four years ago? <laughs> Oh, that was he was sneaking out of the dark. Yeah, he came at me in the subway. I'm like, that's Alan Ginsberg. <laughs> I swear. Another happening on the way to high school of music and art, because I used to have to take an hour's worth of subways to school. Oh my off off hours, and I had all kinds of problems on the on the subway, you know. It was not good. Not Crazy. Good. But so, uh, yeah, so at what point as as things went on, did you uh, start thinking about doing the the video stuff in terms of instruction and that kind of stuff. Right. Well, I started with audio, uh, and as early as back in 1973, I wanted. I knew that one day I was going to do it, and I had already done one set of slide tapes for uh, Happy Traum for Homespun because right. he had Homespun. So I did that in as a follow up to my slide book, you know. And, um, well, not, not really a follow-up, but like in tandem with it. And then uh, we were talking about doing a whole bunch of tapes, like a whole lot of stuff. And uh, in 79, I had been touring. I did the Garfunkel tour, and then I did the Phoebe Snow tour. 
And all of a sudden there weren't, uh, I wasn't getting any gigs. Like the, usually it was six months on, six months off. And I would teach a lot. I would teach like crazy. I'd have like five or six students a day down oh, in lower, lower Manhattan, you know. They'd be sitting in the hallway waiting because I never knew when to stop at an hour. I just kept going and going. So I encouraged my students to, to tape their lessons. I said, because there's just so much information coming out there. I'm not going to be writing it down, you right. know, because that would waste their time. Sure. I said, so let me just, you know, record the lessons. So the students will all have these cassette players. <clears throat> and then one day I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. My, I had a student that said, Arlen, and I moved away and I really missed those lessons on tape. I'm like, oh, lessons on tape. Okay. So that was 73. And then 79, I decided with $2,000 left, half page guitar player ad, $500 tape recorder used. Boom. Started just cutting them one after the other. After I did. My first ad in guitar player offered 42 lessons, six, uh, seven series of six. You know, like R&B guitar, blues guitar, lead, advanced lead, slide guitar, whatever it was, acoustic guitar, you know, finger sure. stuff. So I did all that. And then in, set, in 84, when I started teaching Ralph Macchio yeah. at the Crossroads, which was another experience, um, that's when I decided to go into video because it seemed like, you know, there were enough VCRs out there in the world to justify it. Right. So I did, you know, I mean, we'd have to do VHS beta, you know, but I, the first ones were, I did like six of them and John Entwistle, who had done an audio tape for me, done an audio series. For, and I, he met me in England because I was playing in England and I got a question from the audience. I'm like, anybody have any questions? And the first question is from John Entwistle. I see everybody makes like a circle around him. He goes, how did you do that harmonic at the, you know, I'm like, oh my God, it's sent whistle. So then we hung out that night. It was such a great time. So he did an audio set for me. And then uh, we did a, a video to kick off the hot licks thing, my stuff and John, which was great. You know, awesome. and we, had, we had such a blast. He was such a, such a wonderful guy and such a great musician and great sense of humor, you know, that I would imagine. Only the Brits can possess a certain kind of humor, you know. But you can hit the guitar with your fingers, your collarbones. You can use your collarbone. <laughs> Always with that same dry, you know. Right. And I'm there in the studio. I'm there cracking up. Then I realized that, like, all those years of doing those Hot Leaks videos, I was, like, always in the control room in hysterics half the time <laughs> because it was just amazing watching all this, like, unfold in front of my eyes, you know. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So without without getting you in trouble of naming names and so on and so forth, talk, talk a little bit about, you know, some people have a natural gift of sharing information, like in a video format and so on, and other people it's like pulling damn teeth because they have oh, yeah. no, cl no clue of what they're doing. Sure. So give us a little kind of a cross-section of what that was all like. Oh, God. Well, I had a lot of that. I mean, there were a lot of people, because you got to remember, I was 
making it a cool thing to do because people hadn't done it yet. Right. You know, and like uh, uh, some of the guys were really, really like pulling teeth to get the information out of them. So some of the videos in the beginning, I'm there with them. Like I'll be jamming with like, you know, Mick Taylor, right. who's so wonderful, or, or with John, with Ann Twistle, you know? And then I realized, no, we're going to jam. I'll be able to get that information out of them. I'll be able to point out what was it you did there? You know, Mick will be like, oh, that same old cliche. Like, no, Mick, they really want to know. You know, right, oh, right. It's like nothing. It's a little nothing, you know. But uh, you try to make it interesting. And of course, there were people who uh, early on who I, I, after that, I started asking them questions, but I would take my questions out. So it looked like they were going from one topic to the next, you know, made them look a little bit more fluent to what they were. Because a lot of them were very afraid and tongue-tied and all this stuff, you know. There's other people, like, for example, the last one I ever did was with George Benson. Okay. Great, great guy, great player. And uh, he says, I I feel really nervous about this, man. He says, you got to be there with me. He says, you got to be holding my hand. So I said, okay, so we go to his house. We start The minute we start filming... It's the George Benson show. Right. He's like, welcome, everybody. We're having a fireside chat. It didn't matter, but he just needed me there in the room. Sure. But then his personality shown. And then, you know, that's usually what happens is these people, they, they realize it's not so bad at all. This is cool, you know. And, and I loved doing it. I like being in front of the camera. I got better and better at it as time went on. And that helped me help them. Sure. At it. But I love I love having the hands-on approach of really working with them, you know. Well, and a lot of those, I mean, that those were the videos. I mean, let's be honest. There were those were the ones. And every time a new one would come out, but a lot of times you were way ahead of the curve on knowing who some of these people were. So how did yeah. that all work? Yeah. You know, were you were you kind of like someone would get a hold of you and say, hey, you got to check out, you know, Scotty Anderson in Cincinnati or whatever, you know what I yeah. mean? That kind well, of stuff. you know, from being out there in the world, like I would, uh, like Scotty Anderson, I was at a NAMM show, you know, and a guy says to me, come here, Arnold. you got you got to see this guy play, man. You got to see, you know, I went up to the Yamaha booth and we start hanging out right away. Me and Scotty have a little beer, this and that. Hey, you know, because a guy like Scotty Anderson, nobody knew who he was at that time. But I right. said, this guy deserves to be known. Right. He must be known. So I believed in signing the people who were well-known, who were legends, who had been doing things for a long time. And also people who had something to contribute, right. who, who I felt in their shoes in a lot of ways. Because I knew what it was to be an up-and-coming musician, to try and... Get people to like know you and notice sure, you. Absolutely, you, know, you got you got to do it on your own. So I'm I'm there like this guy Scotty just blew me away. So we had a blast doing his, and you know Eric Johnson for example. When I did Eric Johnson's, which both sold really well, I didn't. People didn't know of him yet. He didn't even have an album yet. That's right. My oh, yeah. But the buzz was so heavy about Eric Johnson. Eric Johnson, and in fact, I did a gig in New York City at the Bottom Line with Mick Taylor. And <laughs> oh, remember, Penny, it was me, Mick Taylor. She doesn't like Mick Taylor. <laughs> yeah. She said, oh, no, not slide again. <laughs> I start howling when they slide. <laughs> but the dogs love slide guitar. Um, but I, I, Eric Johnson was opening up for us. And I said, oh, my God, this is the first appearance of Mick Taylor 
in New York and God knows how long, maybe ever. And half the audience is here to see Eric Johnson. Ah, yeah, yeah. And I remember Mick Taylor walked off the stage at one point and there's, I'm like, he handed the show over to me and uh, it's a guy who goes, you better be good, Roth. They always hand it over to me. But it was, <laughs> Mick was like a little, whatever, he was a little perturbed that night. But, but Eric Johnson, you know, then I met Eric backstage and um, right away I started my spiel. You know, I started talking to him. Because the thing was, I got to meet all these people on the level of being a musician just like them. Right. So they felt they trusted me a lot more. It wasn't like just some business guy saying, hey, I want you to do a video and give up right. all your secrets. You know, it was like, it was me. It was like, you know, we're, we're, I mean, when I did the Simon and Garfunkel tour, I was signing half the band. You know what I mean? Some of them got the advance and never did the video. <laughs> like Ayerto, <laughs> Ayerto Marrero, the percussionist, you know. You know, he, Jack Bruce too. Jack Bruce got all his money and never did a video. Oh, you're kidding me. Oh, he didn't care. He could care less. That was a rough situation playing with Jack Bruce. Oh my God. Oh, do Ger tell. Germany. <laughs> Germany. Oh my God. He didn't talk for three days. And then the first thing he did was he threw his bass like 50 feet. I said, Jack, you know, I don't know if I, I, I don't think I should curse on this thing, but but I no cussing, no cussing. <laughs> I said, Jack, you know, you're playing, he's just going E, 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 and he's smoking a cigarette. E, ha, ha, E, and tubes are falling out of his amp. They're falling, he goes, ha, look at that, the tubes are falling, ha, E, E. I said, Jack, how do I break the, the ice? I said, Jack, this song, I sent you a tape, it goes E to A, then E to B. Look at him, got the studio musician, I can't play this crap anyway. And he threw his bass at a Warwick, a Warwick, not a Warwick, but a Warwick bass, <laughs> 40 feet, like across the studio. Blam! I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be this gig. This is going to be great. And Huey uh, Lewis at one point had to come in the dressing room and break up a fight between me and Jack. Oh, my Lord. Heard Jack was screaming. and I mean, we were just about to go on. I mean, Jack was a great musician. Sure. At that time, he was a little bit, you know, there were some problems with the drinking sure. and the this and that. John Entwistle told me, oh, you know, be careful. Albert Lee said, oh, don't let him drink, don't let him drink. I said, but it's 11 a.m. and he's already blitzed, you know. Or right. Maybe he wasn't drunk. Maybe he just was angry, you know. Right. But it was like, um, it made me think of that Mike Myers character, you know, where if it's not Scottish, it's crap. You know? Right. <laughs> Welcome to all things Scottish. Like, you get like bright red, you know. But when we played, everything was fine, you know. No matter what I played, when the minute I played the solo, it turned into cream. Right. right away, it turned into cream. It's a three-man band. He's up here on the 14th fret of a fretless bass, you know. Ah, but but it was quite an experience, you know. And uh, it was just a little, you know. I didn't expect that interpersonal problem with the musicians I was working with. But at that time, Jack was signed on to do audio tapes for me and video, you know, at that. And then it just never happened, you know, it was too, too difficult. But um, I had that experience, you know, of the B, it was this German TV show called Ona Filter. Oh yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ona Filter, which means without filter, without- That's right. You're not- Filterless. Is it filterless. Camels. 
no, Scottish but- rage, filterless. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny, but you know, and we did like a little interview, and Jack's like, "Is it the eighties already? It's the eighties, you know, like." <laughs> what have you been doing in the 80s, Jack? Oh, is it the, you took me by surprise, man. I didn't know it was the 80s. Very funny. Great sense of humor. But, you know, then later, the next year, Huey Lewis happened to be on that show. The next year, I toured with Dwayne Eddy and Huey Lewis, which was a great, great, great tour. You know, cool. It ended with me falling 15 feet off the back of the uh, stage with, with, with there no lights on the ramp they had a ramp a big high ramp it was like okay we're gonna have our end of tour jam so we got an end of tour jam i promised a little kid in the audience i was going to give him my pick after the show i'm looking like this i've got i'm wireless which i've never been wireless before you sound like you're an fm radio broadcast when you're playing wireless it's weird i'm like gee i'm on the radio (laughs) But, uh, but i uh Yui had his arm around me, and then I, there were no roadies with the lights. The roadies would show. They're already partying, like it's the end of the tour. So I'm walking into blackness coming right out of the lights. So that little kid who I promised my pick, he must have saw me go down, you oh. know, like looking for him. And, I mean, 15 feet and the edge of the, the tuning peg of the uh, – I had the Kubicki Wildwood telly. That Wildwood, the Fender Wildwood. Right, right. Um, caught the edge of the ramp. It bent, and then I went like that. Like it, it probably held me up for like two seconds or something. But, you know, it was, I couldn't walk for months after that. Oh, Jesus. Nothing, nothing broke, but it was just like the uh, cartilage or whatever, stuff like around the knee, you know, like sure. another great way to end a tour, you know. But, uh, oh. but it was a great tour. It was just such a shame, you know, that that, happen and um and all that but you know that was a great tour because i love playing with Dwayne eddy sure Dwayne had Dwayne had heard me on that little sheet and guitar player oh okay the yeah, next yeah. thing i know he called me he's like i want to know how did you do all that you know because he was fascinated by the the string bending the country right, right. so right. that tour the first half of the tour was with albert lee and the second half was me and Dwayne, you know. Cool. And we had some cool, you know, Steve Douglas played sax. It was on the original recordings with Dwayne. You okay, know, like yeah. uh, all that, you know, Rebel Rouser and all that stuff. Right. And uh, a lot of really good musicians. I had Jerry Jamad on bass. Yep. For a lot of it, Jerry's an old buddy of mine. We played together in a million things. So, yeah, cool. you know, exciting well, how stuff. About, how about... Um... I'm curious as to when you first came across Danny Gatton in that relationship. Oh, that was amazing. Well, Danny Gatton was the kind of thing where, like, being in New York City, and we always used to hang out at John Peden's loft. John Peden is the famous the guitar photographer. Okay. He would do the centerfolds, you know, in guitar world and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. He did an album cover of mine. But uh, we'd hang out, and Cesar Diaz used to be with us a lot. Okay, yeah. Caesar worked on my amps all the time, and we always had a ball together. And Caesar would always talk about Danny, you know, uh, and uh, Danny Gatton. And I'd hear about Danny all the time. And in fact, there were even some gigs I got in New York City uh, as a result of them asking Danny to do the gig in New York. But Danny says, "What do you need me for? You got Arlen Roth up there in New York City." So then they'd call me 
And next thing I know, I'd be playing like a Kentucky Fried Chicken jingle or something, you know, where they say, play all your hottest licks. Come on, go ahead. You know. All right. I tried to get Danny Gatton, but he wants you. Okay. So Danny was throwing me work, but I still had not really heard him. In fact, there were many times when I was playing at the um, in Georgetown, D.C. Mm-hmm. I was playing at a place called The Cellar Door with many different acts. You know, um, lots of those folk acts I played with. And Danny apparently many times was playing right across the street in, um, I think it was called Desperados or something like that. One of those kind of names. So there was like a club across the street where he was playing a lot. But I, we hadn't met each other yet. So then uh, we started communicating. He even claimed that he left a message on the Hot Licks answering machine <laughs> about doing a video and that I never got the message. So... He did do two videos for me, of course. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Hysterical, wonderful videos. Yeah, they're but, great. Uh, and and being associated with him was so great, and our friendship. And you know, he uh, the first time he played in New York City, and I met him uh, was on was at the Riverside Memorial Church. You remember that time he was on the cover of Guitar Player with the mask with the half fit, yeah, yeah, world's greatest unknown guitar player, which I think was. 89 maybe or 88 so he invites me to the to the gig and it was snowing like crazy in new york and he um he he we were both into vintage cars you know and so he says you got a buick skylark i said yeah he said well i got a set of wheels for them that you would really appreciate he said i'll bring them up i'll bring them up to the gig so he comes up to the gig he's in a funky pickup truck with four wheels in the back of the truck, and we're in Manhattan. And they're sitting there smoking a cigarette, and we're negotiating for these four wire wheels in his truck. And we arrived, at, I don't know what it was, like 400 bucks, something like that. Okay, all right, great. All right, now let's go in. Now we can go in. It's like Danny wanted to first relate on that level of like, we're just going to get down and dirty and talk about, you know, wheels for our hot rods. <laughs> and, Crazy. Uh, I loved it. You know, I said, well, this guy, and then we, we had so much fun even at that gig. Like, um, <laughs> cause we were talking about cars backstage and we were with Yorma, Yorma and Jack Cassidy. Mm-hmm. And you know, Danny and Jack Cassidy grew up together in the DC. Okay. DC, right. They were like a couple of greasers together, you know? So we're sitting and all of a sudden Yorma goes into this diatribe about all the cars he's got. And he's like in this monotone, he's like, well, you know, I got these funny cars, and I got the blah, 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 I got a funny car, the blah, 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 hot rod, standing a street rod, blah, blah, and he's like going on and on, and Danny just looks at me like, <sighs> like, we can't top that. Right. <laughs> okay, you know, whatever, that's all we need to hear. Right. So, you know. Just rubbing it in. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Great, Yorma. But uh, I played actually at Yorma's camp uh, a couple of years ago. That was fabulous, that, that guitar, you know. Sure, I've heard about the, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Fur Piece Ranch, what a great place. Like heaven on earth for a guitar player, you know. And uh, so, yeah, so all these little moments uh, that thank God I'm good at remembering them too, you know. I know a lot of musicians that don't have a great memory of a lot of stuff they've been through. And it's so important to have those memories. That's all we've got. Right. And, and, And the experiences of if you combine something with your love of music, it just makes the memory of it that stronger. And that more leaving an impression on you, you know. Right. And to meet Danny the first time, you know, 
what a what a great guy. We were like right away simpatico, you know, right away right. buddies. And I got to be with him on his farm. I visited him there with my family. When we were coming up from Florida, we were driving up from Florida. We visited him at his farm in the in in Maryland, you know, and stuff like that. So it was it was great, really great. I, I miss him so much, you know. I we did a it's kind of funny because we did a show with him. It was my band, him and Mick Taylor. And so I met him. Oh, wow. Uh, that night, he, he, he was the nicest pie, gave me his phone number, address right away. And we, we, and we would hang out, you know, talk yeah. every now and then. Just like the nicest guy you could ever meet. Oh, yeah. He was down to earth and he, he loved family. And, you know, he was pretty sick already of the, the music thing, gigging. Sure. You know, you know that he had that, he had like this, this, he, he would love to fiddle with things. He had some kind of box that if they didn't like the gig, he could fry the entire club. Like there'd be no electricity left and they, they would not be able to explain it. So they have to get paid, but they'd be, we're sorry, Mr. Gavin. We don't understand why nothing. He had this thing that <laughs> if he hated the gig, the spoiler, the spoiler, that's right. <laughs> and he hated, he hated a lot of gigs, you know, he really did because he, you know, you start to feel like you're spinning your wheels after a certain Oh, absolutely. You're just playing the same. The negative reinforcement tour, as I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> tour less. Yeah, no, what I do you think about the the whole, um, you, you know, the Roy Buchanan, Danny Gatton? I mean, they were buddies for the most part. I mean, everyone always likes to put some kind of spin on it, like there was some oh, kind yeah, of rivalry. But... No. They were, yeah, yeah. He was on the phone, and he's listening to what Roy's doing. And Roy's right, listening right. to what Danny's doing. Well, you know, if when you listen to Danny play blues, it's Roy. Right, exactly. And I remember that he said that to me. The first time I had him in the studio, I started playing. He said, he's got Roy's hands. He was talking about my hands. He said, your hands are just like Roy's. Because I was doing like the volume swells and all yeah. that. And Roy also had these these really interesting looking hands when he played. Yeah, he did. But yeah. Roy was terrific, you know. Um his manager said, don't do a Hot Licks video, Roy. You're going to give away all your secrets. Oh, yeah, right. I said, how about he'll make some money? Right. Secrets? You give away all the secrets. I said, I'm busy giving them away, too, you know. But that was like a, one of the worst moves in the history of Hot Licks was his manager saying that. But well, do you, have you seen that thing that's kind of resurrected recently? The, um, there's a guy that... Um, I think he was maybe from Guitar World magazine that did a video with Roy maybe in the early '80s, and it's just called Telly Talk. Oh, really? <laughs> and and it's it was and I remember years ago, like when MySpace was a thing, someone right. had posted some of the stuff, really? and Roy's doing all the quasi flamenco, all the, yeah, and, and there's and he plays a couple of cool different chord things that they were. I immediately had to go. Well, I'll be taking Roy, that. Roy was but, fabulous. You know, but it was it was just interesting that it, yeah he would have been so great to do a video with because oh, there's just such a treasure I would have trail. been able to have gotten the information out of him because he right. was obviously a fairly shy guy, you know, uh, soft spoken, and those make the best videos usually. Right. Or there's me that just never stops talking, you know. But uh, <laughs> it's like okay, all our time's up. But no, but but Roy Roy and Danny, I think there was a real a love. Danny had a true love of him, uh, and and they were just local heroes there. But that Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area had so many great players. Right, it was a wonderful uh, history of of music down there. You know, right. 
So whenever I play down there, it's it's somehow kicked into a higher gear. Sure. When you're a telly guy or whatever, you know, and then there's that whole Gatton crowd. Right. That was always around Danny at that time, which was amazing. And John Previty, his wonderful bass player. Yeah, he's great. He played with me on a lot of gigs and, and studio sessions. We did a session a few years ago where <laughs> this Italian guy from Italy was doing uh, uh, all these hit songs that he was doing. Uh, Sweet Caroline by uh, Neil, Neil uh, Diamond. Diamond. Yeah. And so, so you know, Previty drove up from Maryland and I, he proved that he can actually play bass while sleeping. Because <laughs> he's going, where it began, boom, 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 boom. Da, 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 boom, boom, boom. I said, John, you're playing and sleeping. I know I'm good at that. I can do that. It's multitasking. Multitasking. It was just so funny, you know, and, and, but John, John's great. And what an amazing upright player, you know, I mean, phenomenal. And just all, all levels of bass, you know, like he's a really heavy jazz cat. Right. Which is what Danny really was. You know, Danny was primarily a jazz player that he was like the, the Hank Garland of his era. Right. You know, he was a sugar yep. of his ear. Hank Garland did it all. Danny could do it all. Right. You, know, like that. you can do it all too, right? Oh, I don't know. I do something. I think you do it great. <laughs> I love the way you play. <laughs> Thank you. Likewise. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing these days. What's been going on? What's the, what's happening? Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's the result of what I did for the last couple of years. You know, I had that Telemasters album, yep. that came out, which, uh, at one point, it was a long stretch before I was able to get Vince Gill's overdubs and Brad Paisley's overdubs. Right. So I got in touch, me and John Sebastian got in touch and said, you know, that I was going to do a tribute album to Sebastian. Mm-hmm. Because I've done some tributes to like the Stones, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan. Uh, I said, I want to do one with him. Well, next thing you know, he wanted to jump in on it. So we did a... a Love and Spoonful album of like redoing all that great old stuff, me and Sebastian. So that's going to come out in probably a month or two. Uh, and I'm very proud of that album because it's, uh, it's stuff that I grew up loving and actually be with, I mean, me and John have known each other for years from the Woodstock scene. Sure. Uh, and we played on other people's albums together, like Rory Block and things like that, but and always knew each other from gigs. But um, he's such a great guitar player. He's such a great guy, great singer. The songs that he wrote, just anthems, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so everything from Daydream to, you know, Do You Believe in Magic, whatever, my, even some of his more obscure stuff like uh, Four Eyes, uh, you know, I'm playing slide on that. And I'm, a lot of times I'm evoking Sal- Zalianovsky because I loved his yeah. guitar playing. He was a very big part of the Spoonful sound, you know. So, uh, but yeah, so we worked on that album. So that's going to be coming out. And I'm going in the studio um, <clears throat> soon to do, uh, I'm doing a couple of acoustic albums again. And I want to do another band album, which I'm planning on doing with Jerry Jamat, with that bass player. Cool, yeah, yeah. R&B bass player. He's going to get together with me. And I'm summoning my my all-time favorite drummer who I've worked with many years, Michael Braun. Okay, yeah. albums with me too. 
So we used to play as a section for years, you know. And Jerry, Are you in upstate New York? Was that where you live now, or do you live in New York City? Connecticut. Okay, Connecticut. Right in between, you know. So if I have to go to Woodstock, it's not it's not far. Got it. uh, it's a good area in terms of like getting, you know, getting to gigs and stuff like that. A nice, you know, roundabout community area. New York City is like a, about an hour twenty from me, like that. So um, it works out. It's okay. Um, but I I lived over here in northern Westchester for many years. Okay. So this is about, I'm about seven miles from there from where I used to live. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's um, good access. Hopefully there'll be a lot of gigs coming up. I've got some festivals in October. Uh, and But June, I've got some, so, I'm doing a lot of solo acoustic gigs too. Cool. Uh, which actually work out pretty well for me. I either do them solo or I'll do them as a duet mm -hmm. with Chris Foley, who's my other guitar player, who sometimes that's all you need, you know. Uh, right. You get the whole joint rocking and you can stop playing and they're still clapping along, you know, so yeah, you, never, yeah. you never know. But you have all that wonderful space to work with when you do solo gigs. And of course... You can you can afford to take on gigs where you normally would not be able to afford your band. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I got to pay my guys before I, you know, I'm selling CDs there at the end, trying to make right. a little money. You know. I believe uh, but, you. I know the yeah. drill. <laughs> yeah, the whole drill. You know, I mean, it was great when I did that gig at Yorma's place. It was with me and it was G.E. Smith. Okay. Yeah. And we were uh, out there, and the big crowd. I think like 250 people. I sold 90 CDs that night. It's beautiful. I sat signing them for two hours. Yeah. You know, and it's the greatest feeling in the world is when people want to leave with a little piece of you. Yes. Your music is still ringing in their ears, but they want that little piece of you and they want you to sign. They want to meet you. Exactly. You know? yep. And it's, it's just really great. You know, I, I like being out there on the campaign circuit, you know. Yes. <laughs> I really do. Like I used to do that with a lot of clinics. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a, a festival I'm doing in Lancaster, PA, in October, a blues festival, which I'm doing a solo concert, a band concert, and I'm giving a clinic. Yeah. You know, all three things. And that's great. I love yep. it because then the people really get to meet you and, and talk to you. And a lot of times they want to learn stuff. They just want to hear stuff like what we're talking about. They want to hear career stuff or advice stories they don't necessarily want to know well, how do you bend the, the B string. You know, sure, exactly. They want to know deeper than that. You know? They want to know the lore. The lore. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah, that's a good. There you go. There's a title for the book. <laughs> the lore of it all. Arlen's lore. Arlen's lore. <laughs> no, his name's Roth. You got that. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, uh, it's it's just fun to. I, I love to pass it on. Yeah, I guess I hear what it what always has started for me, and I guess it goes back to my early days of teaching, where you feel like you're getting to know that person, they're getting to know you, and they're leaving with more than just a couple of licks. You right. Know, they're, they're, something's rubbing off. It's like I used to say about like my teachers in the old days, and you probably know this too. It's like you don't remember what you learned, but you remember who you learned it from. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. That, true. It's that person. You yeah. know. So that's the thing that stays with you. And um, I guess in the long run, you know, sometimes to me, 
I'm thinking, oh yeah, nobody who cares about this. Care? They care about everything. They yeah, want to yeah. hear it all. You yeah, know, so absolutely. it's uh, it's a beautiful thing, and that's why it lent itself to the audio tapes, the videotapes, and, and things like that. You know, because I, when I look back on just what it was to do those tapes for Hot Lakes, that's a whole lifetime in itself. That's right, a whole right. work. That 180 artists, 220 videos. You know, I mean, and I mean, what it was like, you know, to do Junior Wells's tape, do right. Buddy Guy's tape, do you know James Burton? Right. Uh, each one, some of them, it took seven years to get them to sit down, even you know. But there was a lot of effort put into that because it was, it was about not always having to be on the road that I could watch my f- children grow up, have a family life, you know. Right. Because I'd already known the touring thing for a very long time, for a very at a very young age, you know, uh, and I wanted to be able to settle down. I still was touring, but I had more to pick and choose. You know, like that I was more of a balance. Simon and Garfunkel, the Crossroads movie, stuff like that, where I'd get these special things. Right. But other than that, I had the constant of hot licks underneath that. Like I actually found a way to make a steady living in the music business. Right. <laughs> without having to be in a hotel room all the time, you know? Exactly. But, um, you know, it's, it's, that's just the way it was, you know, and it was a natural drive for me because I was very competitive uh, when I got out there and played. I wanted to really make it. And so I, I channeled that competitiveness into the video thing as well, into Hot Licks as well. Yeah. You know? We do all those 35 NAMM shows in a row. Oh, God. You know what those damn shows are like. Yes, indeed. I don't think I could ever do another one at this point. No way. But uh, well, you know what's weird is because of COVID, people are you know people sold more stuff last year than ever before, and I'm sure a lot of companies are going. Do we ever need to do another Nam show? But of course, it's I enjoy I, going to them still. You know, it's still fun. To, you know, to see a bunch of your old pals and play a little oh, bit. Oh, sure. Of course, it's yeah. fun for me to get out of Wisconsin every January and go out there. <laughs> California. <laughs> right. But yet, you and I were going to do that Wisconsin-Minnesota tour. And we will do winter. it. Yeah. We will do it. Well, I think that would be great. Because I was going to kick it off with that gig at Buddy Guy's. Right. In Chicago. And then uh, we're going to move on from there. So it, that could be really great. And I love that part of the world. Yeah. I really do. And I got family in Madison. You know? Oh, awesome. Yeah. in the, Out there. In uh, it's a little town outside of Madison. I forgot the name, but uh, Mount Horeb, Mount Horeb. Oh, yeah, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful area. Very nice area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, my sister-in-law is out there who I, who has not been married to my brother for over thirty years, but to me, she's still my sister-in-law because I was like nine when they got married. You know, so right. yeah. So, but man, my brother had that whole Chicago connection which was great. You know, I would say even at that early age to see, be in the blues clubs and be in that, that South side of Chicago, it was rubbing off on me already, you know? Right. That's really cool. And with a brother that's 10 years older than you, you always look up to whatever he said went. Right. That's it. You know, I had the same thing. My brother was 14 years older than I was. So, and we had to room together because I had five sisters in between. So everything he was into. Five sisters. Five sisters. What a household. Wow. That explains a lot. (laughs) <laughs> I guess. Well, it's very, you know, that's, that's, yeah, you have to kind of go off on your own and 
and um, and and find your own way, you know, when you're in such a family like that. Yeah. And you know, I didn't really like so much being from the Bronx in New York City. I didn't like the Bronx. I was very much more to myself, playing music. I remember, I used to put my amp in the window, like a like a big um, air conditioner. Ah. And I'd play just so the people could know what I was doing, why I wasn't out playing stickball with them right. or baseball. And one day I had a theremin. Remember the theremin? You know yeah. what a theremin is? Yeah. So I put it into my amp and I'm making all these space age sounds. Weird. And people were reporting that that uh, uh, UFOs were landing. <laughs> the police were getting calls like, there were UFOs, there were Martians, you know. All I needed was Orson Welles to be with me. Like, here they Perfect. War of the Worlds. I'm That's just playing right, the theremin right. out to the to the crowd, you know. Perfect. <laughs> but uh, that was all creative stuff from when I was in high school music and art, you know. Like, you'd be there and a friend would say, here's the theremin, on. I just made it. Why don't you use that? Okay, fine. You know, like, it was that kind of place. Sure, and I was sure. an art student because my... My uh, uh, advisor in junior high advised me wrong the one time I needed her. I was playing classical guitar already and a little bit of, you know, electric guitar. And she, sa she said, oh, you can't get into music and art as a, uh, a musician because you're playing guitar. They don't accept guitar. So I said, okay, well, I got in on art, which was easy with my background. Family. Sure. sure enough, I get there and there's like three people that got in on guitar. Uh. I'm like, you mean, because I wanted to learn to read music and I wanted to play the cello because you could play another instrument. Got it. I used to play the violin, but the minute I saw a cello, I said, I got jealous of that. I'm like, that's what I should be playing. That's a sexy instrument. Yeah, it is. This little thing whining in your ear, you know. But, uh, but so I'm like, oh, great. So, you know, I still played a lot of music, but it was being an art student. And then I got into my photography and all that. But right. uh, it was a great just, I mean, imagine a melting pot of all the walks of life of New York City right. in one place just because they were creative, you know. Uh, didn't matter, music, art, dance, you know, acting. It's kind of like that movie Fame, right? That, that Fame was based on that school. Got it. Fame was based, fame was based on performing arts, which later merged with my school. Got it. But at that time, my school was still in Harlem. So we'd go up there and... Uh, I have to take the subway, you know, for an hour, like subways and buses. And, oh God. Yeah. And we go up there and, um, but it was, it was really well worth it. It was just such a great bunch of people. It was like a, its own community within the city, you know, and, uh, you know, teachers having affairs with students. Uh, I mean, it was wild. It was really <laughs> wild. Woo! It was nuts, you know, and, uh, yeah, it was it was crazy, but and we were right across from City College. Okay, so there was a college campus there too, and this is up in the northern part of Harlem, where uh, beautiful brownstones. You know, that's where all the jazz musicians, right, lived, right, like Count Basie, Duke Ellington, they were all up around there. Yeah, you know, so it was a pretty, you know, it's Manhattan. It's still Manhattan. It was this fascinating area, and. Uh, the kids were just great. I remember I was in school. That Janice Ian was there with me. Uh -huh. um, Eric, is it Eric? Eric Bibb. Okay, yeah. Leon Bibb. Um, I, when I was touring with Richard T. With right. Simon Garfunkel, he was like, you went to music and art? Me too. You know, like he was there a few years before me. So Richard T. was from music and art. Um, 
when you look back on the roster of who went there, there's a lot of people a few years before me, but so many, uh, you know, people that went on to real fame and real, cool. uh, real creative giants, you know, right, right, right. Awesome. So it was a great place. And again, just the teachers, the teachers were so good and the interaction between all the kids, uh, who, who loved to, uh, just play, you know, right. you're there because you loved it. And for me, the art thing was pretty easy to get in on because of my whole artistic family. But at that time, it was already music. It was photography and music that was really winning my heart, you know, so. Cool. Awesome. There you go. Well, listen, my friend, this has been a fascinating conversation as I knew it would be. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. My, my pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for doing it. And hopefully we'll get to see each other and, and do some playing, you know, when this pestilence clears. This pestilence. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. We got to do some playing together, man. I love, I'd love to be able to get the chance of playing off of you, you know. Oh, that'd be awesome. I'd, I'd really and look forward you're, to that. you're playing so great, man. Yeah, I really admire what you do. And oh, well, thanks thank for you. doing this, too, for the whole guitar community. And so, you know, yeah, send me links and I'll post everywhere. Absolutely. It'll, it, we're probably a couple of weeks out before it posts, but when it does, I'll I'll text you or email you with the link and we'll go for it. Beautiful, from man. All, All right, right, let's keep up the conversations and thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Okay. Have a good one. All the best. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.